Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. On March 1st, we will be creating a new channel for MedTech Money. So if you're a fan of the podcast, please search Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to your favorite Project MedTech channels. In this episode, our guest Isabella Schmidt and I discuss the rapid growth of Proxima CRO in the last five years, the new accelerator she founded called M1 Accelerator, the importance of regulatory strategy in an early stage startup, why one might choose a de novo versus a 510k, why startups shouldn't be afraid of a PMA, implementing regulatory strategy into your business strategy, the common mistakes Isabella sees with her startup companies, her advice for startups, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Isabella Schmidt. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Isabella, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah, so so the listeners don't know, but we've been trying to make this happen for a while now in between our schedules. <laughs> it's just now getting around to it in January. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited to talk to you about, about regulatory strategy and, and, and some other things revolving around that. But, but before we get into it, um, let's just give the listeners a little intro to, to who you are and what you do. Yeah. So um, obviously, my name is Isabella Schmidt. I am the Director of Regulatory Affairs at Proxima Clinical Research, which is a CRO, and we primarily focus in regulatory quality and clinical consulting and clinical trial execution. I um, am also a principal at an accelerator called M1 MedTech, um, and I also work with a whole bunch of other accelerators as well, so like Mass Challenge, MedTech Innovator, um, things like that. I have been in the startup space for most of my career. I hopped around a little bit, um, trying to like find myself during my quarter life crisis timeframe where I was, you know, doing like veterinary medicine for a little bit, so I know a lot about animals. Um, and then I landed at a pharmaceutical company, a sort of a, it wasn't really a startup. It had been around for a long time, but it was like a middle sized company, um, and quickly got promoted there. And that's how I found myself into regulatory affairs position. Um, then I moved into medical devices and, um, did regulatory and quality work in medical devices. And then I found my way at Proxima and work with hundreds of primarily startups, smaller size companies, but some really large companies as well that have started their foray into the medical device space when maybe they were doing more like industrial manufacturing before that. Okay, awesome. So So, um, I want to... Yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about Proxima too. So um, I've been familiar with Proxima for a while. So so my background was with NAMSA and then Covance, which is now LabCorp. So I've been in that medical device CRO space. So I've known of Proxima. Um, but, but Proxima's growth, for those who don't know, in the last couple years, at least from an outsider's perspective, has seemed like it's it's been a ton. So can you touch a little bit about when was Proxima founded? Um, where yeah. are you located? 
And 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 how big are you now? Because the, the the one time I had met at Proxima's office, it was in the Texas Medical Center, and there was maybe like six or seven employees, maybe. Yeah, was I there at that time? I don't know. Did we meet in person? Have I, we? I um we we have not. We have not. I I I don't remember who it was, um, but it was at its infancy of Proxima being started. Yeah. Yeah. So Proxima started in December 2017. Um, it was founded. Um, so, you know, mid-December. So really 2018 um, has is when the company's been kind of going on since. And so we're at almost four years. We're at four years, I guess. And, um, you know, like you said, it started off pretty small. I think there were maybe, you know, three founders, Larry Lawson, Kevin Coker, and Jay Thompson. And then, um, you know, they got a BD employee and a couple of other consultants. Um, and then I came on as, I think, like employee number five. And so I've been there for a while now. I, I joined in May of 2018. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I was employee number five. And then we stayed you know, relatively, I mean, we grew over time, but we were pretty small for a while. I think in 2020, we really just took off. Um, and we have, I've lost count. We get new employees all the time. Um, between 60 and 80 employees now, um, on the okay. regulatory cool. side of things, um, we have about 15 um, employees on the regulatory side. So I know those numbers because that's that's my wheelhouse. The clinical side has a lot of employees. And then, you know, we have a marketing team and, you know, BD folks and all of that as well that support the organization from like a SG&A type perspective. But yeah, so it's it's been, I was going to say, yeah, so it's been like growing like crazy. Um, I think, you know, a lot of companies had a hit during COVID and we saw that a little bit in 2020, but then um, it just took off towards the later part of 2020 and then 2021 was great as well. It continued to grow. Okay, great. And, and so do, have you, are, are you, do I remember correctly? Are you building a new facility right now as well? Or new office space or moving into new office space? Yeah, so we have been going through the new office space dance for a while now, um, looking at different spaces, okay. trying to figure out the one that's right. Um, we have been looking in TMC. Right now we're located in TMC. Um, so we're in Houston, so the Texas Medical Center. Um, and if you're, you know, anyone's familiar with TMC Innovation, we're like in that same building with TMC Innovation and there's a J Labs there as well. Okay. So um, yep. we are looking at, we have been looking at space in the TMC Innovation space um, and that is still kind of underway. Okay. Um, and so you mentioned about the M1 Accelerator. Um, I had seen that uh, news come through on LinkedIn um, a couple weeks ago, but but talk a little bit about what is that? It, it obviously was just founded, I'm guessing, or at least you guys just made the yeah. announcement. But but uh, tell me a little bit more about what it is and who's involved. Yeah, so we had been working on that. A for under the radar for a little bit, kind of just conceptualizing it, getting all of our ducks in a row. Um, and so who's involved in it? It is Kevin Coker, 
um, who was one of the co-founders of Proxima, Larry Lawson, who was one of the co-founders of Proxima. He's uh, like a venture partner in it. Um, me and a guy named Sean Bittner, who is the director. Um, and so he's kind of like the master of ceremonies. He makes sure everything is moving along well um, alongside Kevin and myself primarily as like management in it. Um, and so basically it was founded to not really compete with other accelerators because like I said, we're, well, I and some of the other folks at Proxima are involved a lot in many of the other accelerators. Um, and each accelerator really offers something different to companies, right? And, and the different stages of companies. And so what we wanted to do was bridge a gap that we saw in accelerators. Um, you know, a lot of them are for networking and mentorship and things like that. And so we do have those elements because those are invaluable, obviously. But um, there's a lot of gap with the educational curriculum and really taking early stage companies through some of the information that they need to learn and understand from company inception um, or even beyond inception to the later stages. And so really kind of giving them a, beyond a toolkit, like almost like a university for medical device entrepreneurs to ensure that their companies are successful and really kind of accelerating them, um, not just from a financial perspective, but from a information and education perspective as well. Um, in addition to that, you know, offering some in-kind services and partnering with other, you know, firms and things so that there's a good network in general um, to provide them the support that they need going through all the product development that they'll need to do as a medical device entrepreneur and all of the business side of things that they'll need to do as well. Yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds like we need to have a separate conversation about how Project MedTech could could possibly get involved uh, there as well. I wrote your so name we'll on the sheet the other day. <laughs> we'll have to set up some time to do that. So great. Um, well, I appreciate the background on on the various activities you're doing, and especially you know Proxima, the M1 Accelerator. Um, but the real reason we wanted to have you on and and, and really chat about. Um, uh, was was to chat about regulatory, right? So there, there's a lot of times when I talk to startups, I let them know that there's a difference between, you know, like a regulatory person who writes a 510k and then someone who's going to actually give you regulatory strategy advice. Um, mm -hmm. And and sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, well, Dwayne, what are you, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. And, and then others are like, I get it. Right. And those ones who get it generally have successful startups because um, the, the the choices you make in regulatory early on can really um, they, they affect your commercialization strategy throughout the entire um, process. So we give a little intro into maybe your approach when you're talking to an early stage startup who comes to you and says, Hey, you know, this is the product I have. Um, uh, you know, what kind of, what kind of, what kind of process do you kind of go through? I know every regulatory strategy is different, right? I get that. But, mm -hmm. but what's the kind of checkbox questions you like to ask them when you first start working with them? 
Yeah. So my ideal client would listen to everything I say. Um, but my ideal client would, um, you know, I would, they would come to me with their technology and, um, the, the types of things that I want to know are, um, you know, what, what claims do they ideally want to make with their technology? Right. And then what claims can they make? Um, and, if there are competitors out there or other products that are on the market, specifically other products that are on the market first, um, what what is the difference between their product and those products? And then if there are products that aren't on the market but are in development um, from a business perspective, I want to understand their competitive edge with those. And if those other you know products, we don't know what their final claims will be, right? Because they're not on the market yet, but what are they saying they're going to do? Um, and if they're saying they can do, you know, X and you're trying to go below that bar, are you going to maintain your competitive edge in the actual landscape? So for me, there's a lot of business kind of decisions and market decisions that go in it too. And I won't necessarily make that, do that assessment for them. Um, but I encourage the startups to actually consider those things and not just jump on oh, I really just need a 510K or I really need a DeNovo right. instead of a PMA. Um, you know, and everybody's like, oh, PMA often. Um, but again, like what I always tell startups and what FDA will tell them too, is that ultimately you're going to be reviewed based upon your safety and effectiveness. And your safety and effectiveness is based on your technology and the risk and the benefits and the claims you want to make. And so the review period for a startup main and the hurdles that you have to go through so the barriers to entry may not be that drastically different between one type of submission and the next and so educating them on the different types of submissions is one thing that's important but in order to do that for their specific product we need to understand what they really want to do and what their options are in totality. And then also what markets they want to target, right? Because if they want to target the US, that regulatory strategy may look different than if they want to target the EU. But um, if they want to target multiple, uh, in multiple regulatory agencies and markets, then we want to try to streamline their strategy as much as we can so that they're you know, killing two birds with one stone with a lot of the testing that they may need to do. So they're having to repeat things for one market versus another. And the same would go for different indications, right? So if you, you know, for different indications or different uses, there will likely be things that you have to do individually to each one. But can you knock out a couple in the same testing that you, you know, want to generate for, an, for another? Okay. Yeah. And this, this is important. So, so a couple things, I, I want to get to the global regulatory strategy, and then I'm going to come back to, um, uh, multiple indications for use as well. Um, but you touched on, on, on the PMA de novo 510k at a high level. And, and I always like to add this comment in there, but the exit, a lot of times I'll hear startups say, well, I'm not going to find investor dollars if I do a de novo or a PMA, uh, more specifically a PMA. And, and uh, my pushback to them is savvy medtech investors or, or investors who are really inundated in the medtech community, they understand that the return from an investment side is actually faster 
on a PMA as opposed to a 510k. And, and, you know, for, for a startup, you know, maybe it doesn't matter so much, but, but if you're, if your point is that you're not going to find investment dollars, I, I don't necessarily know if that's true or not. It might eliminate, it might eliminate people who aren't heavy in the med tech scene, but it's, it's not going to eliminate med tech investors who really focus in on this space. Um, do you kind of see that same trend? Yeah. So M and A's are usually faster for, well, faster is relative, but faster, I guess, in development and maybe the, the hurdles, like often you'll see a PMA, um, get acquired before they get the actual PMA, a PMA product, I mean, get acquired before they actually right. get the PMA. Um, you know, they do their first in human and Medtronic comes and, you know, buys them. Um, with 510Ks, usually, Sorry, that was my dog. I know you heard that one. Um, with 510Ks, <laughs> usually the, um, the, the strategy is to, they usually have to generate a sales force at some point with a 510K in order to show that there are sales and that there's buy-in into the market, and then they'll get acquired by a strategic. Uh, that's not always the case, but that's often the case. Um, and that's the case for even some de novos too. Um, but typically the innovative technologies tend to fall in the de novo and PMA space. And, um, and that usually inspires more investment earlier on to kind of grab them up before someone else does. Um, and they're not as diluted in, in the space if they're, you know, N of one. Um, the, the other thing is, I think it, it depends on the company strategy too, like even beyond investment dollars and uh, maybe their exit strategy is not to get acquired early on. Maybe they want to develop a sales force and bring it to market themselves. And so, you know, you can do that with any one of the routes, but if, if that's the, the case and you're trying to get a regulatory clearance quickly and you really want to get to sales, then maybe 510k does make sense um, rather than, you know, a de novo or something. But, um, but I think it ultimately is, you know, the, the company's goals are really important um, in understanding which regulatory pathway they want to take, but also how they develop their product. And I mean, a lot of this is just generally good business sense, understanding all of your options um, and creating the full business case, which in, in a regulated space like ours includes the regulatory case as well. And so really understanding that and then presenting that to any investor, if savvy or not, um, if you really can explain your business and the decisions that you're making, you're more likely to get those investment dollars. I mean, that's not 100% of the time, right? You still get told no, but um, you're more likely to have a buy-in and the investors have faith in you when you understand what you're doing rather than just trying to grab the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. Perfect. That was that. That's that's fantastic. So, um, so you mentioned in the in the first comment the global regulatory strategy piece as well. Um, so, so most startups, <clears throat> I see, I'm not sure they're necessarily at the very beginning are are necessarily worried about their global regulatory strategy right very early mm -hmm. on. But but then as startups mature, they quickly have to start thinking about well, what, what market is next, right? So I think that right. uh, um, uh, when I first started in the industry, 
Um, startups said, we're going to go to the EU first because it was easier to get a CE mark and then they come to the US. And, and this is a broad generalization, right? But, but, but now it's different. Now a lot of people are coming to the US first. It's a bigger market. Um, and, and the MDR is not affecting it like it is here. So, um, but anyways, so, so if I'm a startup company, I, I, I get approval in the US um, and, and now I'm looking to expand, right? I'm going to commercialize this. I'm looking at Canada, China, Japan, Australia, Europe, um, wherever else I might think about going, right? Based on market size. H how do you think through the global regulatory strategy as well? I mean, is there, is there an, a lot of overlap between a lot of those countries? I mean, I kind of know the answer just from being in biocompatibility <laughs> so much. Um, but, but I'm curious on, on, on what's that process like though, right? I mean, I, I know that I've had startups come to me and throw six countries of where they want to go next. And it's like, okay, I mean, we can narrow it down from a market size standpoint, but then what about regulatory? I mean, is there a lot of overlap there? What's your approach when looking at all those places? Yeah, so excluding market size and just focusing on the regulatory side of things and, and you know, acknowledging, yeah, the EU used to be like, oh, hey, we're going to go to the EU, get CE mark first because that's easier. And then with MDR, it isn't easier. And it's also very elusive and sort of up in the air in a lot of ways still. Um, but, you know, can... The way we typically go about it, um, you know, one, hopefully the companies have done some sort of market analysis. And so they have a general idea of whether a country is a worthwhile target in the first place. But assuming let's just take the, the bucket of, you know, Canada, EU um, and U.S. Um, and say the, they want to consider those three markets we would try to align testing as much as possible based upon international standards. And that became a little bit more challenging with MDR because they hadn't said, oh, these are the standards we're recognizing and, and all of that. Um, but assuming that they would still be recognizing many of the standards, you know, that's how we would build things and pay attention to whether or not, you know, they change their mind. Um, but Assuming that they do, we try to align, you know, internationally recognized standards, ones that are recognized by FDA and other markets and try to complete the testing plan. So you mentioned biocompatibility, you know, ISO 10993 being an internationally recognized standard. Um, so we try to look for those things that are recognized in the multiple markets. Um, but then, you know, and that's for the testing plan, the strategy on that side of things. But for the markets to target initially, what we, you know, Canada, for example, will recognize other markets uh, approvals or clearances. So if you get a 510K or a PMA in the U.S., Canada will recognize that. Not like full stop, but it makes the review process a mm -hmm. lot easier in Canada. And you see that with like Australia okay. as well. Um, if you you know, see mark or something, you can go to Australia and the the process in Australia is a lot more streamlined than it would be if you just went to Australia first or if you just went to Canada first. So usually we don't want companies to go to Australia or Canada first because they could get another market and then do it kind of 
again, kill two birds with one stone, um, a little bit faster if they do it that way, you know, go to EU and then go to Australia. Um, that at least then gets them into two markets for really one large effort. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, that's super helpful. Um, and then the other point you had mentioned was multiple indications for use. Um, so this one is, is interesting. And I think this actually probably, um, well, no, it doesn't, I want to keep this separate. Um, so, so I will talk to companies, um, and this has happened, I don't know, five or six times in the last like year where a company has an initial indication for use. And then they're like, well, you know what? I'm going to, um, commercialize this. I'm going to go after wound care because that one is going to be a 510k. So I'm going to do some wound care type of product, right? And then, but their real indication for use is going to be a de novo. And, and so something I always bring up to them is in that case is like, well, that should be a business case, right? Um, of course, there's going to be some regulatory overlap, but uh, actually achieving market, any kind of market <laughs> size of, of a wound care product is really difficult, right? That's a very saturated area. There's a lot of players in the market. Um, and so I, I always tell them, it's like, well, you could, you could, you know, use a stepwise approach. You can go after this indication for use and then go after this one, but <clears throat> you better make sure that you can actually sell in that mark, whatever you're trying to do in that first indication for use. I'm not sure that's always the case, but mm -hmm. so putting that case aside, Assuming, assuming, you know, you can actually, let's just say in this example, all the market size is, is, is relatively the same. They have the same level of confidence in being able to achieve market access and in, in whatever indication they're going after from a regulatory standpoint, how do you, what are you, what are you thinking about? Are, are you thinking about, well, this one's going to be quickest. Um, and we're going to be able to use the information from, from this indication on this indication or, or what's that regulatory thought process? Cause business process kind of um, makes sense, but. Yeah, sometimes. Yes. Um, well going back a little bit to, and answering maybe a slightly different question, but, um, going yeah. back a little bit and, um, talking about you know, going into wound care, for example, and that's a diluted market. Um, and you, you, why would you do that if your real product's a de novo? Um, one of the reasons that companies sometimes do that is for a showcase product, right? So they'll they'll do it to say, okay. oh, look, it's a lower bar. So they'll say, okay, look, I've done a regulatory clearance now. I know how to develop a product in a way that is regulatory compliant. And I've engaged with the FDA and got a clearance already. Therefore, investors and whoever else, stakeholders, trust me in being able to do this more interesting, say, product or this other 510K or this other de novo. So that's one reason sometimes they do that. Now, that, that strategy is not right for everyone. And maybe you don't mm -hmm. want to do that. Um, the, other op the other reason that they may do it is, like I mentioned, you know, if they want to penetrate another market and so they say, okay, wound care is a lower bar here in the U.S., maybe the market in Canada isn't as diluted for wound care. I can go to Canada easier now. Um, so that's, that's another reason that they may do that. Now, those things aside, 
if I'm looking at a product and I say, say there's a product and there's a 510K version, quote unquote, of the product, and then a Genovo version of the product. Um, and suppose I know that the 510K version of the product is still going to require a lot of testing, a lot of clinical trial, not a lot of clinical trials, but a clinical trial. Um, and, and it's not really the product that they want to make. Um, and it's hard to separate it from the market and, and the competitive edge and all of that when you're comparing 510K versus Novo. But if that's not really the product that they want to make and they have these hurdles to overcome anyway, and FDA is going to have to review all of this evidence and they're going to have to review clinical evidence, from a regulatory perspective, it really may not gain them very much to go 510K for the indication that they don't really want to go for um, versus, or the technology, you know, maybe they dumbed down the technology that they don't really want to pursue than to go to the de novo where the gap between the evidence generation and the evidence requirements may be minor. And the same would apply to, you know, a de novo versus a PMA. There are other considerations with PMAs like, um, you know, post-market surveillance requirements. Um, and, but if you're going to have post-market surveillance requirements, <laughs> FDA is probably going to bump you from a Genova to a PMA anyway. Um, but, you know, the, the cost of supplements is an, another one, right? For PMAs, supplements can be pretty costly, but, you know, depending on your strategy, maybe you've been acquired by then anyway. Um, and then the, obviously with PMAs, they often have to have manufacturing um, audits beforehand. Um, and I say often because technically with breakthrough device designation, they don't need to. I've not actually seen that happen yet, but that is a potential okay. benefit. Um, so there are those considerations with PMA, but with PMA, you also, you know, don't have, you also have some sort of data exclusivity, right? So it's not like a patent but people can't 510K to your PMA. And so you do have some protection there. And so there are those benefits. So PMA, like you said, devices tend to uh, get acquired earlier. Your exits are a little bit sooner um, than even de novos. And uh, you do have some of that data exclusivity because the, the bar is also just generally higher for PMAs. De novos, there's a little bit of a benefit to de novos over 510Ks too, because with de novos, you get to establish the special controls for that product classification, which means you basically recommend to FDA, hey, here's what I think other products need to do to get cleared for this. And so, you know, if you did a clinical trial, you could say, I think they need to do clinical trials and these are the the objectives that I would say there should be in these clinical trials. So you do have some of that control with a de novo that you don't have with a 510k when you're just like, oh, hey, I'm going to meet you to this other product. Um, and so yeah. even, you know, when you're considering things like that, you do have a bit more of an incentive if you have all these evidence requirements anyway to just go the de novo route than the 510k. Of course, there's a lot of other considerations, but from a regulatory perspective, and from a market perspective, as it as regulatory affects the market, that may be more beneficial. Awesome. So uh, this is why I love doing the podcast and making sure we're hitting record because there was a lot of content in that three minute 
um, uh, spiel right there. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, and I hope our listeners do as well. So um, the other thing I wanted to talk about directly related to regulatory was you had a post on LinkedIn, and this is timely, uh, literally, I think it was this week or last week, about mm -hmm. sometimes the easiest path to market is not always the best. Um, so instead of asking some elaborate question where I ramble on for a little bit, I'm just going to ask you directly, what do you mean when you say sometimes the easiest path to market is not always the best business decision? Yeah, um, it's for reasons like you mentioned with the wound care, for example, right? If you're going into a diluted space, you don't really have a competitive edge. You're going to have to develop a really aggressive sales and marketing team. And even then it's going to be tough. Um, and it should be tough probably if you're going into that diluted space to get investment dollars to support the sales and marketing team. Um, but, you know, th so that's one consideration. The other thing is that, um, that sometimes, as I mentioned before, um, you know, the, the regular, the easy is relative and the quote unquote easy pathway may not be the, the actual easiest pathway from a regulatory perspective. So I think that those are things to consider, um, you know, if you're going into a market that's overly diluted, is this really the the play that you want to take if you're doing a showcase device maybe it is um if you're going to have to develop a sales and marketing team which is often the case for many 510ks and you're gonna have to show sales to get an acquisition i don't know that that's necessarily the best pathway to go down so those are some of the things that i would i would consider in that and then obviously you know and i'm not an expert on this but Reimbursement is another thing that people should consider when they're thinking about these things. So market access in general, not just not just are there lots of other products out there, but how does my regulatory pathway and the claims that I make and my technology affect my ability to get payment from payers? And I can't tell you how it will in extraordinary detail, but that is something that I would want companies to consider when they're making these decisions. I think it's always good to consider that pretty early on, at least from a high level. You don't need to get into like health economics and design trials and things, but understanding like, is there, you know, a code for this already, or am I going to have to generate my, a new code, etc. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that's great about reimbursement, um, tying that in there because, and so we, we talk about that on the podcast frequently and we've had a couple episodes about it, but um, it's not just whether you have a code, but, you know, how are your competitors, especially if you're 510k, how are your competitors currently being paid and whether that's, you know, some type of code, who's paying for it, um, why are they going to buy it and understanding, I think that's a huge one, is understanding how your product um is you know are you reducing the amount of procedures uh are you know what is what is your product doing to the overall um healthcare system is is really important to understand um because i think sometimes people underestimate 
who they're going to sell their product to um, and who's actually going to pay for it. Um, and and so so it's a little little trickier there. So reimbursement is a whole another episode, but I'm, I'm glad you tied that in there because it's an important factor. And it's also an important factor on, I, I, I always stress this to startups, regulatory reimbursement, clinical strategy, commercialization, those, those four pillars at a very early stage, you better have a feel for what's going on in each one and how each one affects the other um, because it's not a stepwise approach. Um, so, so I'm glad you tied that in there. Um, I, I think, you know, in, uh, in closing one of an, another topic, I I'd love to hear your, your opinion on is, is maybe not, it doesn't have to be tied to regulatory. It can be, or it can be a little bit of both. Um, but you've obviously spent a lot of time around startups, you know, whether it be with Proxima, um, now with the accelerator, but you, you, you are, um, I, I believe you, you participate in some, you know, pitches and, and you're a judge in some of these events, right? So you see some of these startups, what are some of the biggest pitfalls that you see with early early stage startups, and then I'd love to end it with what's some of your bet you know two or three maybe just one whatever it is advice for startups. Mm -hmm. So from a pitch perspective, um, often I will see startups not really explaining their technology very well. Um, and you know, you don't need to get into like your product requirements and everything that goes into your design specs, but being able to articulate your product and how it addresses the problem that you're trying to solve is really important because if I don't understand your product, then I can't make any sort of assessment or judgments on it. So that's one thing. The other thing is, um, from the regulatory side of things, I will often see companies, um, just kind of like, you know, I've talked about before latch on to a certain pathway without and it's clear to me that they haven't really thought through the pathway and it may not even be the right pathway. And they're just kind of throwing out a word there so that they've checked that box. And so any savvy investor, anyone savvy in the med tech space is going to be alarmed by that. The other thing that I often see is their timelines are completely unreasonable and unrealistic. And um, if you are starting the company today and you say in six months, you're going to have a 510K or even like a PMA, there's just no way and no one should believe you. Um, so those are some of the things I, I think developing realistic timelines, um, understanding your resource requirements, uh, understanding what regulatory pathway you're actually going to go down and truly understanding your technology and the space that you're going into are really important. Um, and when I say the space you go into, I mean like the clinical workflow. So how do you fit into the clinical scenario now? Um, FDA is going to be interested in that as are investors and, and everybody else. Um, and then it's really important, um, you know, you don't have at a really early stage sales revenues to base uh, financial projections off of, but to do some sort of financial projection analysis that is reasonable, um, especially if you're going in with an ask. Um, you know, I've seen companies come with crazy projections and then with crazy asks. Like one company asked for like something like $500 million and it was like, what? Um, so I think that um, 
really having a reasonable ask and a, and you know coordinating that with your valuation and the financial productions is really important as well when you're putting pulling together these pitches and then as a general comment being really coachable so um especially not even especially regardless of whether you're new to the space or um you think you're a legend being coachable is important um and understanding that even if you've done something before if you're going into a new situation it's not identical to the last situation there are going to be nuances in that and you need to be open to other opinions um obviously vetting them um other ideas because if you're just trying to use the same strategy same playbook that you used before it may not work or it may not go as well as it could because you're just thinking really in the box um and i don't want you know people to get be like oh going totally wacky out of the box but not trying to fit everything to like a solid like a a mindset that you've had in the past i think that is really important on um, being open to other opinions and gathering them and assessing the weight of those opinions into your overall strategy that would be my advice that's uh, great feedback to end on because um, I think any any of the entrepreneurs I've had on the podcast so far um, have given very similar feedback of check the ego at the door. It takes a team, you know, to to really be successful, and and that mirrors what all the investors say, which all the investors use a, a, a weird analogy for me at least and i don't know if it's investors are really into horse racing or not but they all use this term a b a b horse with an a jockey and um so so i've been rolling with that as well but but uh you know it it, it kind of fits the same feedback you just gave of it takes a team check the ego at the door you don't know everything um, and, 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 you know, take people's advice. So I think that's great feedback, Isabella. Um, hang on for a minute. We'll, we'll chat here when I stop the recording, but, but thank you so much. Um, if for all the listeners, I I'll have Isabella's, uh, um, LinkedIn in the show notes. I'll have Proxima, um, CRO's website in the show notes. And then I'm, I'm assuming M1, uh, Accelerator also has a website now, so I'll include that in there too. It does. And it has a LinkedIn page. Okay. Proxima has a LinkedIn page too. Oh, great. We're so just I'll... all about LinkedIn. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So I'll include all of that. Um, so thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. And uh, yeah, hang on for one minute. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.